0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. Our church's vision is to have a passion for God and compassion for people. We hope that the teachings in this podcast will encourage you as you seek to follow Christ and grow in your faith. Now, let's get into today's message.
1: Well, good morning, Ritman Grace Brother Church. It's good to see you. I hope you had your coffee this morning. I don't know about you, but that's rough getting up sometimes on uh, spring forward. So, so I'm glad to see that you're all here springing forward with me. Um, my name is Clark. I'm the pastor here. And if we've never met, never had the privilege of uh, meeting and talking, I'd love to uh, meet you and your family after service. So feel free, feel free to stick around and uh, I'd love just to catch up with you. Well, I'm excited because we're going to start a brand new sermon series this week called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus. So as we start this brand new series, we're just weeks away from Easter. And in these weeks leading up to Easter, we want to focus our attention on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we're asking this question, why is Jesus' death on the cross so central to Christianity? What is it about the crucifixion that lies at the heart of the Christian faith and practice? Those are going to be the kind of questions that we're going to ask throughout this sermon series. So if you or somebody that you know is not a Christian, um, in other words, if you're just on this journey trying to learn about Christianity and what it's all about, what Christians believe, this is a great sermon series for you to be here for because we're going to get right at the heart of the crucifixion of Jesus. So I hope that this is uh, helpful for you as we're trying to answer that question, what is the central message of Christianity? And what a helpful reminder for so many of us that do know, love, and follow Jesus. But here's something that's so interesting about the cross. The cross has become the universal symbol of Christianity. Everywhere you go in the world, if you see a cross on a building, you know that that's probably a church. And the cross became uh, this universal symbol of Christianity. We wear it on our necks, around our necks. We hang it on walls. We affix it to our buildings. But just for a moment, just for a moment, I want to try to pull you out of the familiarity that you have with this symbol. And I want you to imagine that next Sunday, you get out of bed, you make your coffee, you get dressed, and you gather up whoever you come to church with, whether that's some family members or friends or whoever, you drive into the parking lot, and you park there, and you walk into the church building, and here on the front wall is this huge, larger than life electric chair, or maybe a huge syringe. Would that maybe get your attention a little bit? Like I hope that if you saw that, that you would be a little bit startled and you go, hold on a second, what is going on here? Well, if you get your head around that, that is how the cross would have functioned in the mind and the experience of a first century Roman. So part of my goal in this sermon series is to help you see the cross through first century eyes. Crosses in the first century were instruments of execution and torture, and so 20 centuries later, crosses are very innocent, and you walk in here and you see a cross, and you're like, oh, cool, it's a church. But no one in the first century would ever consider the cross an object of religious devotion, an object suitable for display in a building like this. Listen to what Anthony Thistleton has to say on this topic. He says, This death on a cross was regarded in the Roman society as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists. could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminals. It was so offensive to good taste that the crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society except through the use of euphemisms. For Gentiles who might imagine a divine savior figure and for Jews who expected a Messiah anointed with power and majesty, the notion of a crucified Christ was an affront and an outrage. I think it's hard for us to imagine the psychological effect that seeing a cross would have on a first century person. Because for us, even things like electric chairs and lethal injections, that all happens behind closed doors. We don't experience these things in our everyday life. But author Tom Holland, who is an expert on the Roman Empire, he encourages us to take a little imaginative journey, a little thought experiment. He encourages us to imagine walking on a famous Roman road in the Roman Empire. Imagine you're taking a journey with your family or friends from one part of the Roman Empire to the other walking in these famous Roman roads that connect this Roman Empire, and then you come upon a city that had just revolted against Roman rule, and there had been some kind of rebellion, something that raised the attention of the authorities, such as that they had to move toward this city to stomp out, stomp down the rebellion. Tom Holland says that what you would experience in that moment is that along the main highway for up to a mile, you would see hundreds upon hundreds of bodies hung on crosses on public display. The hills around the city stripped bare of their trees because the soldiers had harvested those trees to build crosses on which these rebels were hung. So imagine taking that journey, coming upon that scene, imagine just the sight, imagine the sounds, and imagine the smells, and imagine the the bad dreams that, you would wake up with the following night, and imagine what it would be like to see someone that you knew, a neighbor, a friend, from your past, hanging there in the last moments of their life. That was a very normal experience in the first century world. And that's the kind of thing that the cross symbolized. So you see, the cross is not this tame religious symbol, and rather it's scandalous, it's revolting, it's unsettling. If a first century Roman soldier walked in and saw this or that, if they walked in and they saw that up on the wall, they they wouldn't certainly calmly make their way to their seats, wait for service to begin. They would be more likely to be overcome by shock or by disgust or maybe even trauma. So my hope this morning is to change the way that you see the cross. I want you to unsentimentalize the cross for you this morning. I want you to stop seeing it as something that's tame and safe and innocent. And I want you to start to see the cross as something that is appropriately scandalous. Because today we're talking about the scandal of the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is scandalous because it violates our expectations. So the way I want to structure our time this morning is really under these three headings. I want us to see that the crucifixion is scandalous because it violates our expectations of what is wise and what is foolish. It also violates our expectations of what religion should be about, but it also violates our expectations of who is in and who's out. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, and let's dive into the center of this passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, a little bit of context of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Corinth was a major trade route in the first century. It was fairly a young city, around 90 years old, when the Apostle Paul penned this letter to the church there. So there was a lot of new money there. And there was a lot of new wealth there. And there was a lot of new affluence there. It was a multicultural place. And it was a very progressive place. And in many ways, it was a quite modern city in the Roman Empire. And to this church in this city, surrounded by this sort of modern sophistication, the Apostle Paul writes this, breaking in at verse 18, it says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And you'll kind of notice this play on words as I read through that. That back and forth between wise and foolish. And that's the key aspect in this first part of the passage that we're looking at today. The crucifixion violates our expectations of what's wise and what is foolish. Because there's wisdom that the world runs on. Correct? There's wisdom, a wisdom that the world runs on. There's a way of doing things that makes sense if you want to have success in the world. For example, if you're going to start a business, general wisdom will tell you, you get some investors, you raise up some capital, and you write a compelling business plan. That's what general wisdom would tell you in the world. If you're going to invest in stocks, you better buy low and sell high, or it's gonna not go well for you. If you're gonna go in for a job interview, general wisdom would tell you, you put on some nice clothes, and you show up ready to impress. All right, you make your Zoom call look really fancy. If you're going to start a religion, you don't build it on the news that the founder of the religion died a shameful, humiliating death, exiled from society, and abandoned by all of his followers. That's not the way to begin. And yet, that is the very message that's at the heart of the Christian faith. That the central figure of this faith died in a shameful, humiliating, degrading way, abandoned by everyone who followed him. And the Apostle Paul says in our passage today that that's part of what makes the word of the cross so amazing. That's the message of the cross and why it's so amazing. It's utterly foolish. It's totally upside down from the way that the world would teach us to think and from what we would expect. And the Apostle Paul points that out in our text today. This is exactly what God said that he would do back in the prophet Isaiah. This is one of the fun things. As you read through the New Testament in your Bibles, there is a classic New uh, New Testament way of reasoning. As the apostles look back through the events of the cross, when they look at the teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures, they see all these places in the Old Testament Scriptures where suddenly what God was saying has new clarity. It's often said what's concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. It's another way of saying that. It's as though on the other side of the cross, looking back, we can see, of course, now I can see what the passage was talking about, what the prophet was prophesying about. So the Apostle Paul, writing in the first century, is looking back to the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 29, listen to what Isaiah says. It says, "...the wisdom of the wise will perish, and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish." And the Apostle Paul, he looks back at that phrase, and he says, Oh, God had said something to Isaiah that he was going to do. He was going to do something that would confound our best best attempts at wisdom, that would make our discernment look confused. God said that he would do that. And now in light of this message of the cross, the crucified and resurrected Messiah Now we see what Isaiah was talking about. He goes on to say in verse 20, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the word? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The point that the Apostle Paul is making here is this, the cross totally upends the world's value system. The world's way of looking at things. To the world, the cross of Jesus Christ looks utterly foolish. And yet in the wisdom of God, it's that very same foolishness that saves those who believe. It's only through the foolishness of what we preach that this message of the word of the cross is the reason that anyone can be saved. And the idea that he's getting at here is if we just said, hey, let's just line up our best attempts at wisdom and thinking and taking what we would come up with ourselves. Would that lead us to God becoming a man, dying on a cross, being executed, buried, and then rising from the dead on the third day? If you stacked up what we expect and what we think makes sense, it would not amount to that that's not what we would come up with if we could design our own religion but that's the wisdom of God Paul says it's upside down it's foolish it's backwards from what the world expected that the only way it makes sense when you hear this message and the Spirit of God works through the word of the cross to make you see what God is doing in the cross of Jesus Christ you just go that is so amazing but I never would have come up with that. The crucifixion violates our expectations of what is wise and what is foolish. It turns upside down the world's way of thinking, the world's way of looking at situations and deciding what to do. But it also violates our expectations of what religion should be about. Violates our expectations of what is wise and what is foolish, and it violates our expectations of what religion Should be about, look at verse 22, Paul continues, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now let's just slow down here a minute and meditate on what the text is saying for a minute. Just really press our minds down on this. Let me ask you a simple question. What do you want out of church? Paul is saying that every one of us comes with a set of expectations. There's something that we think that we want to gain. In his day, the Jewish people expected signs, miracles. The Greek people came with the expectation of wisdom and sophistication. So what do you expect? What do you want? Do you want inspiration? Do you want spiritual uplift? Do you want meaningful relationships? What are your expectations? What you probably don't want, at least initially, is the cross. The language of the Jews and the Greeks in this text is really broad language. Paul intended to capture two major worldviews that were present in the Apostle Paul's day in the first century. The Jews were monotheistic, religious, and devout. The Greeks were polytheistic, intellectual, and skeptical. Roughly speaking, there were religious people and there was more secular people, philosophical people of the day. And it's actually similar in our day. We're really not that far away from that. What religious people are generally looking for from the church is signs. And we might say it a different way, experiences of spiritual power and inspiration. Miracles and healings would be great, but at least give us kind of this uplifting spiritual experience that makes it fun to come to church. We want the worship to be celebratory. We want the sermons to be inspiring sorry about that we want the environment to be positive meanwhile what secular people are looking for in church is wisdom sophistication nuance proofs intellectual rigor and scientific reasoning and they might think don't tell us that you believe the Bible is authoritative word of God or that you think Jesus got out of the grave that's not intellectually sophisticated Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the thing we're giving people is not what they want, and it's not what they expect. They want this, and we're giving them something totally different. Christ crucified violates our expectations of what religion ought to be about. And it was true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day. Whatever started you on a journey of spiritual exploration, you probably did not expect it to end with a guy hanging on a bloody cross. And when you realize at the heart of this thing called Christianity is this weird event called the crucifixion. Notice what Paul says in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles that Greek word for stumbling block is scandalon, And it's the word to which we get from our English word, scandal. Paul's getting right at the scandal of the crucifixion here. And we're going to do a little bit of Bible work now. But this is gonna blow your mind. If you hold your place in 1 Corinthians and flip your Bible back to Isaiah chapter eight, or if you don't have a Bible, we could throw it up on the screen for you. But in Isaiah chapter eight, Notice what it says in verse 11. This is what the Lord says to me with His strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He continues, He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be, here it is, ready? A stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. You notice what Isaiah is saying here? He's saying that the Lord will become both a sanctuary, a place of refuge and safety, And also a rock of stumbling and a stone of offense. And the Apostle Paul is saying what Isaiah was talking about is exactly what is happening when we preach Christ crucified. Some people take sanctuary in Jesus, in His death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, and it offers them forgiveness to be the thing that we are hoping for, the thing that gives rest and refuge in their souls. But to many people, especially to many of the Jewish people in the Apostle Paul's day, the idea of a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block. In other words, it's a rock that they trip over. The cross is something that trips them up, and they can't make sense of it. And it keeps them from seeing the glory of what God is doing. A few chapters later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah also made this prophecy in chapter 28, verse 16, so this is what the sovereign lord says see i lay a stone in zion a tested a tested stone a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation so notice it's the same image it's the image of a stone it's the image of a rock and keep in mind the image that's being used here so in isaiah we're given these two images one on the one hand god is laying a cornerstone in zion on which he's going to build something but then also the idea that God is going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the last one is the same New Testament author that we're looking at this morning. If you flip over to the book of Romans chapter 9, still the apostle Paul, but he's writing to a different church in a different book. But I want you to see what Paul does in Romans 9. He's talking about the exact Same problem that he's facing in 1 Corinthians. Basically, how do we explain, especially in the first century with the Jewish people, these people who had the law, they had the prophets, they had covenants of God, they had the Scriptures, those who have been the most prepared through years and years of God's revelation to see and know the Messiah. The question is, how do we explain that many of them rejected Christ, that they did not Come to faith in him. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Here it is. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay. Here in Zion, here it is, ready? Stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Did you see what Paul did? He just combined two of the passages into one. Isaiah chapter 28 says, I have laid in Zion a precious cornerstone. And Paul says in Romans chapter 9, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He combines the prophecy of Isaiah 28 and Isaiah chapter 8 into one. And why does he do that? Well, because he's an apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He gets to do stuff like that. But also because Jesus fulfills both. The the point of the New Testament and the point of the apostles, the point of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ is in fact the cornerstone, the sure foundation, the rock on which the church is built, the rock on which your life ought to be built. The thing that gives Grounding and stability and purpose to your life and to what God is doing in the world. And Jesus Christ is also the stumbling stone, the one who trips people up, specifically because he died on a cross. And it just doesn't make sense to us. It makes us confront the fact that we have a problem called sin, and that problem requires a serious remedy. And to think of that remedy of being the bloody death of the Son of God on a cross is kind of too much to think about. We think, let's just go on with our lives, entertaining ourselves some more, but the cross violates our expectations of what religion should be about. Religious people want signs, secular people want wisdom, but Paul says, we preach neither, we preach Christ crucified. The cross violates our expectations of what is wise and foolish. It violates our expectations of what religion should be about. And then thirdly, finally, it violates our expectations of who is in and who is out. I know this probably isn't a shock to you when I tell you that our culture is being increasingly polarized. I mean, we all feel this, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. You're either left or you're right. You're either liberal or conservative You're either blue or you're red. And increasingly, everything in our culture is being placed along the line of this spectrum. And it's like there's no middle ground. It's like you just got to pick a side, right? Our culture wants to say that you either have to be here, you have to be here. And what tends to happen in this kind of world and culture is that Christianity is placed on one side or the other of that divide. But the text here shows us that actually the word of the cross, the message of the cross crucified creates its own third category. The gospel message will not be placed on either side of the current political spectrum or in the first century political spectrum. In fact, the message of of Christ crucified creates a third category and it doesn't fit on either side of that. God calls people from both sides of the divide into this category. His people That are defined by Christ notice what Paul says in verse 23 but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God so in the first century this us versus them this polarization Jews versus Greeks You're either a Jewish person or you're a Greek person. The question was, which one of those are you? So we could put you in the right category. But the scriptures tell us right here that God calls people from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds into one new people called the people of God and Christ. And this verse tells us that both Jews and Greeks can reject the cross. And they can do it for different reasons. They're offended by different things, but both of them can reject the cross. But also, both Jews and Greeks can find their way into this new life because of the calling and the grace of God. And the same good news is true in our day. Wherever you come from, whatever your background is, whatever your political opinions, whatever you find yourself on the social spectrum, guess what? You don't get to box Jesus in there with you. Rather, Jesus calls you into a new category called His people, which offends everyone equally. So you're too conservative for the liberals. You're too liberal for the conservatives. You're too left. You're too right. You're too right for the left. You're too blue. You're too red. You're too purple. That's what it means to be a Christian because you're in a new category. You're called into a new people. And notice what makes the difference. Verse 26 Paul says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. In other words, he's encouraging us now as the people of God, those who have been called to faith in Jesus, to think back to your story. Think back on your journey. Paul says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him, because it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. So why are you in Christ Jesus? It's because of Him. It's not that religious people embrace Christ crucified while secular people rejected him. It's not that Jews are prone to embrace Christ crucified while Greeks reject him. And it's not that wise people embrace Christ crucified and foolish people reject him. But rather, it's that Christ crucified is so foolish and so ridiculous and such a scandalous message that the only way that you could ever embrace him is by the way of grace and calling of God. We would not come to this conclusion ourselves. None of us would have thought this up as a way of saving the world, but the wisdom of the world does not have a category for the cross. It's not what we were looking for, and it's not what we were expecting. It violates our expectations of who's in and who's out, of who matters and who doesn't, of who's at the front of the line and who's at the back of the line. The only way that we get in this is by the grace of God, which is why Paul says, you don't get to boast. You don't get to boast. It means that we're not smarter than anyone. It means that we're not better than anyone. It means that we're not more faith-oriented than anyone. We're simply a trophy of God's grace and kindness. So if you're in, if you're a person who loves Jesus and knows Jesus, who has embraced Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, then don't boast, Paul says. Give God all the glory for your salvation. And if you're not yet a person who has embraced Christ through faith and repentance, guess what? You can get in on this too, Paul says. What this text is saying to you is that the kingdom of God is open to you, to any kind of person, from any kind of culture, cultural background, from any place in the world. There's no people and place and territory and nation and language that's excluded from this salvation. But rather, all you have to do is to become a fool. All you have to do is give up on your attempts at wisdom, sophistication, and lay aside your expectations and acknowledge that you're a really weak and foolish and frail human being who needs to be saved by the scandalous message of a crucified Messiah. So in the weeks to come, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at various angles. We're going to be keeping, uh, we're going to keep looking at the crucifixion of Jesus from different vantage points. But this morning, I just want us to see with new eyes the scandal of the crucifixion. The way the message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, violates our expectations. It violates our expectations of what is wise and what is foolish. It violates our expectation of what religion should be about, and it violates our expectation of who is in and who is out. And as we close today, I just want to ask you to cast your eyes to the very beginning of the passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and look back even to verse 17, the verse that comes right before this passage that we focused on this morning. And here we have Paul's summary of his own mission. Paul is an apostle describing his calling from God. He says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So notice in verse 17, Paul says, God sent me to preach the gospel. That's his primary calling. And then in verse 18, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness. The gospel can be summarized as the word or the message of the cross. So the question I want to end on is, why is this shorthand? Why is he writing this letter to the church in Corinth? Why does he summarize the gospel message as the word or the message of the cross? I mean, couldn't he also have said the word of the resurrection? Could he have also said the the word of God's new creation? Couldn't he have also said the word of the kingdom of God that's come in Jesus? And yes, he could have said all of these things, but in various other places in the Bible, it summarizes the gospel using all those forms of shorthand. But here's what I want you to see in this place, in this church, surrounded by every, uh, this very sophisticated city and a bunch of people that are pursuing affluence and identity and power and trying to make a way for themselves, Paul chose to specifically summarize the gospel as the message of the cross. Because it's the cross, not the resurrection, not the new creation, not the kingdom of God, that confronts and subverts the world's value system. If you're trying to show people the stark distinction between how the world thinks and what the gospel calls us to, what better way than to show that then reminding people that the gospel message is the word of the cross. We love stories about resurrections. Marvel comes out with one every year. We love stories of kingdoms. But crucifixions are not cool. Crucifixions are not cool and they never will be. They're not sophisticated, they're bleak, they're depressing, they're scandalous. And similarly, the message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified will never be cool we will never it will never be wise in the eyes of the world so to become a christian you have to become a fool michael card is a singer songwriter musician and he wrote a song based on the very passage in 1 corinthians that we're studying this morning i want you to i want to read this uh, to you it's his artistic way of summarizing the scandal of the crucifixion here's what he says when we in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool, and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable, and become a fool as well. That's Christ's invitation to you this morning. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we thank you that you played the fool and opened our eyes. Thank you for the scandal of the crucifixion and the way that it bends our expectations and challenges the wisdom of the world. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to become weak and humble ourselves in worship. For those who have not trusted, surrender to you through faith and repentance, I pray that maybe today is the day that they put the stake in the ground and just say, I'm going to repent. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus so I can have my sins forgiven and live in heaven with Him forever. Lord, may they find the message of the cross compelling for our good, for Your glory. Amen.
0: Our church's mission is to follow God, share His truth, and be examples of the love of Jesus to all. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website at www.ritmangrace.org or drop by anytime for one of our in-person Sunday morning worship services. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Rittman Grace Podcast.